Louis, is the music too Christmassy? Uh, I mean, you're talking to a non-Christmas guy, so I'd say it probably is too Christmassy. The start, I would say, is not Christmassy, and then the, when the bells come in pretty hard at the end, it's pretty Christmassy. Okay, look, I've got to give you the first question of the day. Non-Christmas guy, what's that mean? Uh, I think it's probably because I've spent so many Christmases away from my family, um, being in a winter sport. So I'd say I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm the Grinch, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to go out and like, you know, decorate the whole house and 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 do that sort of thing. So I, I'd say I, I love Christmas for getting together with the family and and seeing uh, friends and family in that way. But I can't say I'm I'm into the whole decoration and and going crazy on Christmas movies and stuff. Yeah, look, that, that's fair enough. I was expecting some kind of bad answer, like, oh, I hate Christmas, I hate happiness, but cool, it's good. You just <laughs> nah, nah, nah. That's, that's fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Um, anyway, I've, I've got to kind of introduce it to everyone. So, of course, you are uh, Louis Mullen Schulter, uh, alpine skier, goes down the hills uh, very, very fast, Winter Olympics, Beijing, coming up, uh, and started skiing at three years old, I heard. So, Louis, mate, pardon the language here, but how the fuck do you start skiing at three years old? Ah, uh, jeez, you can ask, you can blame that on my parents. I think there's actually a photo of me, and there's a story from my mum. I can't, I don't, I have no recollection of it. But uh, I think when I was actually like younger, I was one and a half. My mum and my dad were on a, a ski trip to Falls Creek, and they were cross country skiing actually at the time. I think, and I was in a like a one of those like baby backpack things on my mum's back, and she basically fell over cross country skiing, and I went flying out of the backpack face first into the snow so that was apparently my first experience of of, uh snow as a kid but um yeah I think my family especially my dad always really loved the snow and and loved skiing so he was probably to blame for getting me on skis so young we spoke about your tooth on the pocket profile which I encourage people to check out on the on the patreon but did any damage come out of that full face first out of the little baby backpack uh Mum says no, but I would I would hint there's maybe some early uh, child trauma from that uh, from that uh, occasion. I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I never. I was there was never any uh, part of the story where I was rushed off to hospital. I think it was just uh, a face full of snow and and some crying. Okay, that, that's good. At least, well, at least what they tell you. Uh, who, who knows yeah, what happened sure. in real life? But. Um, like, you're three years old, and well, look, you're probably not racing then, but when you are racing, I'm guessing you're just competing with people older than you, and when you're a teenager, you probably competing with adults. So what was it about you and you as a skier and even you as a person that made you able to compete at a higher level compared to everyone else your age? Um, I think it would probably be uh, a little bit of not stupidity but maybe blindness to to what ski racing really was I think especially coming from Australia you never really I mean until I was kind of 16 years old I never really understood fully how big the ski racing world is especially in in somewhere like Europe it's it's kind of like our AFL equivalent where it's you know every every game is or every race is broadcast live and and you know it's a huge deal so I think I think there's I was kind of blind to, to how big it really was and it was just for me always I always loved the challenge and I always loved uh, competing in whatever I did and, and ski racing was particularly a hard challenge and I kind of always just gravitated towards yeah wanting to wanting to improve at it and, and whatever level I was at whether it was from a young age into schools racing in Australia and Victoria to to now racing on the on the World Cup. Um, and getting to go to my first Olympics, it's just I've always wanted to to try and be the best in in whatever yeah level I'm at, and and that was that was kind of big the big driver for me. Did you say schools racing there? Schools ski racing in Victoria? I've never heard of that. Yeah, so it's actually it's kind of all snow sports. I mean, mostly uh, skiing. So there's some freestyle that happens as well, but um, inter schools racing is kind of. Um, one of the things I, that first got me into ski racing, so I originally started by myself for a little when I lived in the country for my country race club or for my country school, and, and you basically sign up and, and go to, I, I believe Mount Buller still hosts the inter-schools, and it was where 
hundreds of Australians would get into ski racing and, and you'd, you'd basically compete against uh, in different age groups. So originally there's kind of div, Division 5 is the youngest and then all the way up to Division 1, which would be um, your year 12 in high school. Um, and you would kind of compete at all levels all the way through and in multiple events. And that was kind of my real first introduction in Australian ski racing. So when you're at this young age, and I guess you're, you're doing it very, very early, but when you're learning the fundamentals of ski racing, what, what are you learning? What are the fundamentals of ski racing? Ah, uh, that's a tough... I think, I think the fundamentals of ski racing are like the fundamentals of, of any sport. I mean, you have to... You have to have coordination. You have to have, uh, you know, self-awareness of, of, of your body. I'd say it's maybe I'd relate it to something like a, a mountain biking or a, a motorbiking as a sport where, you, you know, the, the craft you're on. So for me, it's my skis, but whether mountain biking or motorbiking would be the, the bike. Um, it's kind of like you need to have it as an extension of your body. So it's kind of like trying to learn the awareness of, of that and then that kind of is I think one for me one of the bigger uh, basics and and need to knows and then it kind of goes on to the the technical aspect of, of how to edge the ski and 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 how to stand on the skis and be balanced and then how to make a, a turn. How, how big just quickly is the ski racing community in Australia when you're in school? Uh, so I think I want to say there's uh, at least a few thousand. I know at interschools level there's. For sure, between three to I'd guess between three to five thousand total across snowboarding and skiing um, that goes to those events um, from anywhere from ten years old to to eighteen years old finishing high school. Um, so it's it's definitely uh, a bigger. It's not a small area. I think it just gets uh, it kind of gets lost. A lot of people end up moving away to other sports. Obviously skiing in Australia is only a couple months long just without how short our winters are so I think often a lot of people get drawn into to other winter sports whether it's footy or or summer sports even like cricket it kind of it kind of thins out and the, the older you get the the more you know the people around you in the ski racing I'd say. So can you tell me about moving on from Australia the Australian scene and going to America? Yeah, sure. So when I was 16, I kind of knew I was halfway through my 10th grade in in high school in Australia, year 10. And I was, I was, I knew I kind of needed to, I was really into all sports, whether it was, I was still playing rugby at the time. Um, I was starting uh, for our first team at Melbourne Grammar um, when I actually (laughs) decided to move to America and, and still rowing as well. And I really loved all sports, but kind of knew I needed to pick one, and and ski racing was that one I picked. And in in order to kind of follow that dream, I knew that I had to go somewhere else to a bit, like basically just ski enough um, to compete with the rest of the world. And that ended up being America, um, as it was a good compromise to. My parents still wanted me to really focus on school, and and I found a sports academy over there that that would support me and and let me do um, a lot of my skiing uh, and chase my skiing dreams while still um, holding me to a high standard on my education. So that was when I was 16 and finished high school in America. Yeah, mate, when you're 16 and going to America to finish high school and go skiing, that's that's pretty brave and it's not a typical thing at all. It's a bit of a gamble even. So how did you feel when you first make that move as a 16-year-old Louie? Like, were you just loving life at the start over there or were you, you kind of, uh, oh, to put it bluntly, were you shooting yourself? Uh, I'd say at the start you, you're always, like, super excited. It's like when you think you're, like, you know, you think you have uh, superpowers and, you, and you're like, ah, oh, it'll be fine, I'll be, I'll be good. And I think it was about, yeah, a couple, after a couple months I kind of realised how, how gnarly it was moving over there it was you know going by myself and, and basically living in a dorm for eight months of the year nine months of the year um was was definitely a big step and I, I had a couple of times when I was definitely pretty homesick whether it would be you know having 
stuff go on with medical issues or, you know, whether just needing to do dentist appointments and, and setting up bank accounts and all that sort of shit that, you know, you never think as a 16-year-old because your parents kind of have you covered on that stuff. That stuff really, I think that's the stuff that really was made me shit myself because you just have no idea where to start. You're just like, how the hell am I going to deal with this problem today? Yeah, oh, it's really being thrown at the deep end, isn't it? And like, it's not, it's not college, so you're not staying at a college. Where, where are you staying? Uh, so the academy I was actually at um, have dormitories. So we, it was kind of um, a pretty, a pretty big sports academy. So they actually, um, well, I wouldn't say big. They graduate about on average ten to twelve athletes uh, a year, um, but. They go all the way from ninth grade to, to grade year twelve, um, so you end up you end up in a dormitory with kind of twenty other I'd say twenty other kids from all different ages. Most of actually from America, whether they were just a couple hours away um, and didn't want to have to travel to school obviously every day, or or from the other side of the country. So that's kind of where I, I would live. So that was that was the nice part. It was all covered by the school in terms of that respect same with uh food for the dorms we were always we always got given breakfast and lunch and dinner so that was definitely a big part that was taken out and one thing that was like i don't think i would have gone for sure if i was doing that sort of thing by myself and living in an apartment at 16. Were there being like dormitory parties and stuff or are you at the right age and the right kind of culture for that over there um i wouldn't say it's like anything like you would imagine like a uh american pie sort of-esque, but uh, I mean, hopefully none of my old teachers or, or dorm parents are listening, but uh, we for sure had some had some parties, and I mean, you're at that age where you're getting into trouble no matter what you do. I think it's a, it's a different, kind of a different scene over there with the drinking age being so much higher. Obviously, coming from Australia at 16, I'd, you know, you're already introduced to alcohol, and it's not like a, a crazy thing that is so... Uh, not forbidden, but uh, kind of like outlawed, as in kind of underage drinking in America. So it's definitely a, a different scene with that with that in context. But uh, yeah, we definitely we definitely got into trouble. I mean, you're all you end up all being athletes, so you all kind of have uh, goals still that you're working towards. So it ends up being ne- nothing too crazy. Do you remember what the criteria were for the athletes that? got into this school and well, I should ask as well what is the name of the school uh, so the school is Sugar Bowl Academy it's actually in uh, Northern California near Lake Tahoe um, and I mean I went through a bunch of testing uh, just kind of like baseline obviously high uh, educational testing to make sure I'm up to a certain standard to the grade I go into and then in terms of the athletic side of it it's it's kind of more I wouldn't say it's like necessarily performance-based um they they do um there is compensation sometimes depending on like your level and how well you're competing for the school um but it's more kind of based on your goals and and you do some um i went through a couple interviews and and that sort of thing with the coaches and the and the principal of the school kind of to see if your goals and your your aspirations align with if, with what the school is trying to do. Okay, and next question, follow-up from that kind of, why this school specifically and just more generally, why the United States as opposed to like Austria or something who's got this great, amazing history in alpine skiing? For sure. I would say America um, was – I chose America because – I was I I mean I only know English as a language and I wasn't prepared to kind of go that heavy into the deep end of of trying to learn a whole new language and being a and kind of being in an environment where English wasn't the first language. Um, I don't think I was was ready for that and I also wasn't sure I was ready for that much uh, not commitment but just that much I guess uh, focus on on just ski racing um which kind of leads me to why i picked sugar bowl as the school was i guess the place where it was um it's not necessarily considered a uh the most uh uh focused i wouldn't say the most like it doesn't have like the the craziest 
weather environment for ski racing obviously ski racing you don't really want it to snow a ton and you want it to be you know icy slopes the whole time kind of the worst conditions you can imagine for for normal people to ski on is usually what we want for ski racing um whereas sugar bowl in that environment was it has a lot of big mountains around it and a lot of free skiing and i was still and i still do love uh free skiing and, and powder skiing and and just enjoying the outdoors so that was kind of a, a big key for me and why i chose sugar bowl was just the being able to go outdoors as well as actually ski race and coming out of this school when you're 17 18 youth olympics bronze medal is that right yeah actually it was um i was still at school actually it was my i can't remember, i think it was my i actually re- went back to the start of year 10 um so i could get an extra year of school because it's kind of weird how the school years line up um but i went to yeah youth olympics in in norway and i was competing in alpine skiing but also in ski cross which is actually where i got my bronze medal um, and I'd, I was still doing ski cross kind of for fun and just went into the event with kind of no expectations and, and ended up in the, in the finals with, an, uh, with a chance to, to win it. And I ended up crashing. I actually took out kind of half the field when I crashed. Um, and yeah, ended up getting up and the guy who came fourth, um, ended up losing a ski, which is kind of why I ended up in, in third, but yeah, I was I was battling for the lead and, and crashed into the guy in first. He went kept going, um, and the guy in fourth went through to second, and then uh, the guy in third and myself crashed into each other, and that was kind of how that all played out. So it was kind Jesus. of kind of a crazy one. So ski cross, can you tell me about the difference between ski cross and alpine skiing? So ski cross would be, I mean, it's it's got aspects of alpine skiing where it's got. Um, turns and and normal uh like what you would see in an alpine course and gates but um a whole lot more terrain and usually jumps and kind of features are added into it um as well as probably the biggest aspect is you racing against three other people rather than just yourself and a clock would be the kind of big takeaway differences yeah okay gotcha but do you still you're only in alpine skiing now that's right yeah yeah, yeah. So I ended up. Yeah. Focus, I'm still. I mean, I'd still love to do ski cross, but it's kind of such two different, different worlds of the ski industry that it, it's hard to continue doing it. Um, I mean, any any time I see a ski cross track, I'm always keen to to have a jump on and have a go. But my focus is predominantly uh, alpine skiing at the moment. So, Matt, the question everyone's asking here: you win a bronze medal in the Youth Olympics for ski cross, but that's not what you continue on with. So, <laughs> what? Why was that? Ah, that's probably stupidity, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, no, I think, I mean, I'd always, I'd always been, uh, I'd always been more into alpine skiing and into, into especially slalom and GS, which are kind of my two main disciplines. Um, and I, I guess I kind of did ski cross um, just out of, out of fun and out of, you know, something that was completely different and something I could enjoy doing. Um, which is, I think, ironically why I did so well at the Youth Olympics was I just had no real expectations and I, I was just there to have fun. Um, so I kind of, yeah, it's always in the back of my mind that maybe one day when I'm, when I'm done with ski racing or I want a, uh, a, different, a different challenge, I can maybe try jumping back into the ski cross, but maybe we'll see in another four years where we end up. <laughs> Have you learned lessons from uh, that kind of... Yeah, no pressure on yourself, just have fun and getting a bronze medal, which is just an incredible achievement in the Youth Olympics in uh, ski cross. Have you learned lessons from that and taken that into where you're at now? For sure. I think that's, it was kind of one of the bigger things, uh, moments where I like kind of learned that lesson of of kind of trying to, I mean, not have no expectations, but but search for the for the joy in, in what I'm doing and, and, and trying to stay present and focused like focus more on on the place i'm at at that point in time rather than kind of all the the things that are in the back of my mind whether it's being my own expectations or my own goals and aspirations because i think that's always been i think for me is where i'm always competing my best is understanding that those those things are there and they're a reality and and for sure whether it's 
you know, qualifying for the, these Olympics or, or anything like that or my, my future goals for me and when I'm skiing at my best is always when I'm, when I'm just present and, and, and focused on, you know, that, that day and that, that, uh, aspiration or that, that race, sorry. Yeah, that's a ripper mentality to have. But you mentioned the stack that you had in that Youth Olympics. Do you have many stacks in yeah, your ski racing now or is that not too much of a thing? Yeah, t- too too many, honestly. <laughs> um, it's kind of one of those ones that it, it's inevitable. I mean, in anything, you're obviously, if you're pushing the limit and you're, you're trying to you're trying to go as fast as you possibly can. You're always always on the edge, um, but I mean I've been lucky. Uh, I've never had too many too too gnarly crashes. I seem to manage to walk away from a lot of my a lot of my big crashes. Um, but it's kind of the reality, and, and I think especially in uh, slalom, which is one of the events I, I do and I'll compete in um, in Beijing. Um, you it's such a high risk. Um, in terms of in terms of crashing or in terms of straddling a gate, which is where the gate will go through your leg, um, through between your two legs, um, you'll it's such a high risk because of that because you're basically trying to go as tight and as as close to all the gates so you have the shortest path to the bottom. Um, that it's inevitable and you kind of it's one of those risks that you just accept and you're not really it's never really in the back of your mind. What's the most serious one you reckon you've had in your time in the snow? Um, I had a pretty bad one uh, a few years ago where I my the binding on my ski actually failed and it broke. And I was going, it was when I was still competing in downhill and it was in a downhill training run in Lake Louise. And I my binding broke right as I was in the middle of a turn on my outside ski and it basically, I was like, I fell over... And as I fell over, I was probably on 100 kilometers an hour or something like that. And then basically went uh, like effectively on a 90, it was basically a 90 degree turn. And I effectively went, instead of turning, I kept going straight. And I went straight into a, uh, it's called a net, which is basically like, imagine a tuna net that you catch tuna in. And then it's just one of those hanging up. So I went about 100 kilometers an hour into into one of those and stopped in about half a meter. Oh. Jesus, Jesus Christ, mate. Yeah. The, the binding that you said there. Let's get a bit technical here. Tell me about the binding of a, of a ski. Yeah, so it's basically the, it, you have like this hard plastic boot on. Imagine like a, a Timberland that looks way uglier and uh, way bigger and bulkier. And then you the binding is basically screwed into the ski and then it kind of connects. You It has like hooks on the toe where the toe of the boot um, your ski boot will hook into and then it'll kind of clip up onto your heel and the back, effectively the heel where it clips up uh, broke, it like shattered because of a bump on my ski so my heel fell out of the ski as I was going uh, 100 kilometers an hour and then basically went straight sideways into a into a big hanging net Oh, Jesus Christ we were talking about scary moments yeah. the profile. that does sound quite quite the scary moment um gee, i don't yeah. know if it's up there with the teeth story because that that's a scary one as well but um like by by this point in your career mate you're probably and by now you're just traveling everywhere i, I guess uh, just all over the place sure. europe north america asia everywhere so surely there's been some kind of travel nightmare story um sometime in the road for sure i think i mean you 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 end up kind of expecting it with uh, with ski racing, especially, you know, we're traveling with, you know, five to eight bags anywhere we go on, on airplanes and most of them are oversized and two meters long and all this, all this sort of shit. So you kind of expect to lose bags and stuff. But I think probably the worst, the worst travel day I've ever had was, um, oh, there, was there was one I had where I basically was racing a race in uh, uh, in the east coast of America and we raced that day. We drove to the airport. Um, uh, we got to the airport about like 11 o'clock at night and our flight was at uh, kind of 1 a.m. time. Get to the airport, flight gets cancelled, so we got a hotel room um, for the night, go back to the airport at 7 a.m. for the rescheduled flight, get there, check everything in. We think everything's good, um, get to the plane, 
board the plane two hours later we take off we take off two hours late there was like a, a problem with the plane and at this point you know we've been traveling for for 20 odd hours because we drove like eight hours from where we were racing back to the airport um finally take off we're about halfway through the flight flight uh you know the pilot comes on there's bad weather where we're meant to land so we're redirecting to another airport we land at the other airport and you know we're like ah we can still make the connecting flight they put it on we try run through uh we're trying to run through like the the customs and we get to the start of the customs line and the guy basically says like nah you're gonna miss your flight turn around and doesn't even let us like try and go through customs so we we basically call it quits on that get another air, um, hotel for the night at that point all our bags were lost so like they didn't know where they were um, back to the airport the next day um, finally get on a flight um, but that flight goes like to the west coast of, uh, of America flew all the way to Phoenix and I was trying to get back to Montana so we flew like another six hours um, to Phoenix Arizona get to Phoenix Arizona had another four hour layover and then flew to Salt Lake City and then finally back to Montana, get to Montana like uh, three days late with no bags, no nothing. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was just like those those days when you just like, you like kind of accept it and you just like, yeah, I have nothing. I've been in the same pair of underwear, fucking same, same t-shirt for three days. And you're just like, yeah, I smell like shit. I look like shit and it's just gonna be what it's gonna be. Oh my God, mate. Uh, that's a shock, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure there'd be plenty more where they came from. But uh, we, we do have to talk about some other stuff. I'll, I'll, I will ask though: how many how many skis are you taking when you're going all over the place and traveling by plane? Uh, it depends. By plane, I'll kind of limit it a little bit more. Um, I'll try and fly with only like uh, seven or eight pairs of skis. Um, but if I'm driving to races, like in Europe, I'll have anywhere from from eight to ten pairs of skis at any one time between two disciplines so it's a lot of stuff plus you have two boots you know one for each discipline multiple helmets multiple pairs of goggles and and protection and all the, all the, all that sort of junk so you end up flying with six bags or eight bags minimum usually yeah fuck ten, ten pairs of skis that that sounds like a lot i, I don't know yeah. much about this but do they just like break super easy or something what why uh, um different different models um sometimes the case so different they're made differently so they kind of ski a little bit differently um slalom skis also tend to break a lot so that's kind of why you tra- travel with uh between like four or five pairs of those because they'll break and then you need to have backups um also when you when you race you'll also have kind of two to three pairs when you're racing at any one time so you have uh one pair for each of your race runs plus um skis to warm up on so it's kind of like you end up you don't think you're like how can you need that many you only ski on it one at a time and but it's kind of like one of those things where you're just trying to limit um you know as many variables as possible by having multiple pairs uh, multiple sets of equipment just to make sure that you know it's the same from one run to the next so are they breaking during runs sometimes? Uh, yep. Yeah, they'll break between runs. I mean, generally, they won't break so like badly that they that you'll notice it, but you'll kind of finish the run, check your skis, and they'll be, you know, they might crack or they might delaminate or, or something like that. Yeah, right. And are you paying for all this stuff yourself? Like, what's the level of self-funding and like government funding uh, and all that? Um, so, so with, because Australia is pretty small in ski racing, um, luckily I get helped out by companies. So, uh, companies help me, uh, Shred Optics actually helps me with protection, like helmets and goggles, um, as well as back protectors and all that sort of stuff. So they actually, um, give me that stuff for free. Um, and then skis I get, uh, through head for a discount and, um, they kind of give me a deal there and then and then a lot but a lot of the travel and and the racing costs actually are self-funded so that's um through me and private funding and and that sort of thing so it's definitely you go yeah go on Uh, i was just gonna say yes it's definitely not easy i end up you end up spending a lot of your uh off season kind of kind of working for for uh you know uh private funding and that sort of thing yeah and is there prize money involved when you get to the good competitions 
For sure. There's, um, especially more in Europe, there's prize money. Um, generally, it kind of depends on where you're racing and, and who you're racing against. But at the at the highest level, the um, World Cups, there's, there's prize money. Um, but it's uh, for the top 30, which um, is kind of how ski racing works, is you, have, you do one run, um, especially in World Cup, and then if you make it into the top 30, then it'll flip and 30th goes first for the second run and first goes 30th to try and make it even. But generally when you're trying to break into that, that scene and start in the top 30, which makes it easier, you'll start. So I'm, I usually start around the 60s, somewhere in the 60s when I'm starting World Cups. So you end up having to beat 30-odd people just to even get a chance at a second run, which is when you get the opportunity for prize money. So it's... It's definitely a, a challenge in itself because you're you're competing against you know the 60 best of all countries in the world at that point. Yeah, can I ask Louis what what kind of figures we're talking here? Um, in terms of prize money. Yeah, in terms of prize money. Uh, so first place on on a World Cup event, it kind of depends on where the event is and how prestigious it is. Um, but they can range; it can range from anywhere from. Uh, forty thousand euros to closer to a hundred thousand euros. So, it's 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 definitely big money when you when you make it to the top. But it, it's it's uh, not easy like like when you're getting there for sure. Yeah, geez, but bloody hell for for the top. Geez, they must be loving life for that kind of money. I know they've yeah. worked hard, but whoa, yeah, geez, hundred thousand yeah. euros. That, that's not bad at all. And uh, I had a little look. Am I right in saying that? Um, you do a bit of fundraising just through the support of the general public and ever whoever wants to give you a hand. Yep, I do. So actually, previously, uh, I actually just started this year, but um, this year I started kind of my own, my own kind of uh, crew, I would say. Um, in terms of, uh, it's called Alpine Assault, and it's it's kind of my own uh, merchandise line. I had a friend create the graphic. Um, it's kind of wacky, but it's it's kind of my style and and. He's a he's a pretty cool dude, so I was like stoked with the with the graphic and part of that money. Um, so basically, all the money that comes from those uh, that merchandise being sold goes directly to supporting me, whether it's travel costs, so flying to races or or race entries and equipment costs. That's all covered um, with that money, as well as you know travel and, and car rentals and, and that sort of thing, as well as. Um, also doing kind of private funding, whether it's through uh, like a kind of a GoFundMe sort of page um, and things like that through family, friends and, and companies and so on. Yeah, all right. And there's an awful lot of money to raise, I guess, to kind of get get all the money you need and you get that through all, all the different sources. Uh, this is tricky question but he heaps of people people who don't like sport and people from all kinds of groups are going to think that that donated money should or could or should be going to a better place that's not helping you out with chasing your dream of um like getting to the top so what do you say to those people who think that for sure i mean i mean that's the the thing with any any donation i think um you know, most donations go to great causes and, and you have to decide kind of what, what cause you, if you are going to donate to a cause, what you want to donate to. I mean, obviously, um, donating to someone like me, it's not necessarily something that's going to, uh, you know, save lives, say something like uh, Red Cross Foundation or, or something like that. But, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of something that maybe is more directed at, at family, friends and, and people like that who, you know, if I can help um, inspire them and, and inspire, you know, what is possible, uh, that's kind of that's kind of my goal as well, you know, to, to bring, you know, hope to, to people in, in sports or in communities that, you know, maybe don't get the opportunities because obviously like ski racing is not a... It's not a well-known sport in, in Australia, but it's still, it doesn't mean you can't have dreams and, and chase those dreams. And I kind of want to show that, you know, any those kind of things are possible if you if you stick to them. Yeah, I appreciate the way you answered that, mate, because it is a very tricky issue and the whole funding things, it's very political in sport and 
you've got people who are just totally anti-sport and people who think that sport's just got the greatest cut through of anything ever and can just inspire people, millions of people, billions of people around the world. And, like, the answer's probably somewhere in the middle uh, in truth. But, sure. um, like, when, you, when you're using that money... Um, like, how often are you forking out for new equipment? Because it, it does add up very quickly, I'm imagining. Um, I mean, the equipment costs are kind of, it's more once or twice a year in that respect. Um, so the equipment cost is not necessarily the biggest one. They're usually the bigger costs are uh, accommodation um, because I'm obviously not living in Europe and I don't have a, a base full time. You end up traveling a lot and so things like, accommodation costs or, or race entries and lift tickets is where most of the money ends up going. Um, or even things like travel, whether it's um, paying for petrol to drive to the next races, whether it's two hours away or five hours away, that ends up being um, predominantly where a lot of the money goes, is just getting around and, and living and traveling. And, and I think that's where I think a lot of people kind of are misguided in ski racing it's kind of this idea that it's not always kind of a different sport to any other sport where you don't necessarily have a base where you just train at the same place every day and you you know you might have uh you, you have kind of five or six competitions a year ski racing is you know all across europe i can travel on any day and probably race the next day whether it's in italy or austria or germany there's there's always somewhere to race and somewhere to to compete so where are you based for most of the season? I would say, I mean, in terms of early season and, and training and stuff, I'm based more in Italy. So I'm based in kind of northern Italy, uh, Tyrol Valley and South Tyrol Valley. It would be kind of where I'm, I'm based a lot. There's a lot of uh, racing around there and a lot of training around there. Um, it's also where the team I'm with, World Racing Academy, is kind of based. So we end up doing a lot of our stuff and our training and off time is spent here. Um, but then I'll travel from to places like, uh, you know, eastern, eastern Switzerland or even to France for races. So that's often like a eight, ten hour drive away. Um, and then you can have races on the uh, eastern side of Austria or sorry, the western side of, or eastern side of Austria, yeah, um, which is another... 10 hours the other direction so it's kind of it's you have a base but um you end up spending little very little time there in the end just because of how much travel there is yeah and there is all this travel but if like is there a reason why you don't stay just in one place and that you kind of just center all your travel around that and is that the most common thing to do or what's the usual thing I mean, I think that's kind of, we kind of do it that way. Um, and in, in honestly, that's kind of how we try and plan it. Um, just with how many races I'm doing and I'm kind of competing at two different levels. So I'm competing at on the World Cup level um, where there's only about uh, 16 races a year total. But then I'm also competing at the European Cup level. So that's kind of a nation's cup for all Europeans as well as doing uh, normal regional races. Um, so you end up kind of traveling so much just because of how many races you're doing. And, and with skiing being such a unpredictable sport, you kind of need to have that volume because things just happen, like things just go wrong without you trying to, you know, whether it's a ski popping off or, or you know, things get canceled due to weather or postponed or moved. It's, you just kind of end up having to play the, the 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 numbers game and, and get the volume. Yeah, man, and you you've done all these races. Well, what for 20, 20 odd years now since you were three. Uh, yeah. Like we were talking about at the start, but now you're in the Olympics. You're going to Beijing in, geez, a matter of days. I'd I'd predict. Um, so you get the chance to talk to your five year old self or your ten year old self. What are you what are you telling yourself? Um. I think I, I probably would try and not say too much just because I wouldn't want to scare myself. Um, I think I'd say just um, I'd probably tell myself just to remember that there's going to be a lot more bad days than good, I think, and and not to not to kind of get stuck on the bad days. Um, usually, in, especially in ski racing, you know, things just 
happen whether it's you know you have bad travel days or or skis pop off or things break and and it's it's a constant battle whether it's been the last three weeks or it's been you know five years of it it, you just you kind of always got to keep looking forward and and try not to get hung up on whatever just happened or happened a week ago because I think that's what I've come to learn recently is often the days you least expect are when things end up going right and, and turning around and things go your way. Were you a guy who is particularly, or even is now particularly prone to over-focusing and um, or overthinking about like the actions of what happened on a bad day? I think so. I think for sure. I, I mean, I try to be less so, but I, I'm usually someone who's pretty hypercritical. Um, just, I think it's my nature. I've always wanted to to be as good as I possibly can at whatever I'm doing, and and that ends up sometimes being coming across in the in the fact of me kind of overthinking and over analyzing stuff rather than just kind of learning to accept and move on and move forward. So I'd say it's kind of in my nature to to get hung up a little bit and kind of get stuck on that analytical side of it all. And you, you've been doing it for, yeah, 20 years, as I was just saying. But have you, like, and you've always, I'm guessing, just all throughout that, just focus on this goal, getting to the Olympics, just getting as high as you can, um, just like trying to win, 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 win. Have you ever come close because it, there is that just massive obsession? Have you ever come close to losing the love for it? Um, I, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think more than... You know, I, of course, like anyone, you have those goals of making the Olympics and, and, and things like that. But I think my goal has always been to, to get to as high a level as I can and, and, can, and be the best that I possibly can. It sounds kind of corny, but uh, that's kind of what's kind of always driven me is to try and to try and get to that level where I'm like satisfied and, and I kind of am always driving for perfection. And I think that's kind of probably one of the reasons why I've never really felt like I've burnt out or, or, or anything like that is just because I kind of always see that there's always something I can change and there's always something I can and improve on and, and, and fix to, to get to that next step or make that next improvement. And now that you're about to head to Beijing, have you got a particular aim or a goal? Um. That's a tricky one. I think, I think my my biggest goal would be, uh, now that I've been kind of racing on on the World Cup a little bit this year as well. Um, I think my biggest goal would be to to, I guess, compete against those world like the best in the world and kind of be at the same level. Whether it's be, you know, kind of in the mix and and getting into the top twenty, into the top thirty. And, and being solidly in there and, and fighting for my chance to, to you know, even top 10. Um, but I think more than that, I think my, my biggest goal would be to just, uh, yeah, learn, learn from the experience and, and take away as much as I possibly can um, because, I mean, hopefully it's not the only one I ever, ever go to and I, in, in terms of long-term goals, it's definitely not my goal for this to be the only one. Um, so hopefully I can... I can take it as a stepping stone and, and you know, build off, off everything I learned from it. Can you tell us actually what events you are in, Louis? Because I think we haven't gone into the specifics. So, yeah, what, what events are you going to be in? And can you tell us a little bit about what they are and how, how they differ and how they're similar? Yeah, sure. I'll be competing in Giant Slalom and Slalom. So sound very similar in terms of names. Um, the key differences are kind of the, the gates, so that'll be the, the things that we ski around when we're skiing. Um, Giant Salem has basically panels or flags between two poles, um, so you're on longer skis, it's a longer radius turn, um, and it's generally a longer course, it's generally closer to a minute, a minute ten um, seconds long. Um, and, then it's acro- and then you do two runs of that, and then Slalom is... Uh, basically the shortest radius turn so anywhere between six to eight meter um, or between six to 13 meters will be the radius between each turn 
um, and then that's single poles um, that you basically you'll hit effectively um, as you're skiing down. So that's kind of the big the big differences is, is um, and then slalom's obviously a little shorter in in distance. You'll only it's only generally about 50, 50 seconds long in terms of the course length. Okay, gotcha. Very well explained. And uh, is is it one of those events or both of those events or none of those events that you're um, that like make up the comps that you're competing in just around Europe in the regular season? Yeah, so the, both of those events are what I compete in regularly across Europe, um, whether it's in the World Cup, which is the kind of the main stage, um, or European Cup or, or regional races. It's all um, predominantly slalom and giant slalom uh, races. Okay, awesome. And I have heard that you've been in some, some pretty decent form in the lead-up, fair few podiums uh, in, the, in the slalom, in the giant slalom uh, in the lead-up. Yeah, I've had some. I've had some uh, solid races. Uh, um, kind of mixed bags with with ski racing. I've had um, so a lot of good skiing and and times where I'm uh, you know kind of top three and then and then crashing out or, or having big mistakes and then um, having some some success and some podiums in in uh, some national championship races that I previously just did. Um, and as well as some really fast fast skiing and in terms of on the world cup where i'd been um inside the top 30 in in splits which are kind of like part segue times um on a run where i've been um top 30 on those and then crashing out which is frustrating but that's kind of the the way of the sport so i say i'm definitely the skiing's there and and i'm i feel like i'm skiing fast and i'm, I'm confident in my skiing it's just got to yeah, keep keep pushing and, and hope everything comes comes together on the day. Oh mate, you've got me very very excited about the Olympics now and uh, yourself. You might have you might have put the listeners into a bit of a frenzy as well. But there's there's a final question before the final segment that we always ask to all of our guests. We've talked about the ups, we've talked about the downs, everything uh, in your life and your career, all that. So, Louis, do you have a life philosophy? Any particular guiding principle or? Anything like that that you Jeez. can live your life by to get a bit deep on you? Uh, I'd say probably, I mean, they always change. Um, I think like anyone, they change as you change as a person. But I'd say probably one that has stuck with me recently is uh, um, I keep telling myself to be more like a goldfish. Um, I saw somewhere that basically like, you know, uh, goldfish are basically the happiest creatures in the world. They only have a 10-second memory, so it's always just like that. those 10 seconds and then they move on to the next 10 seconds. So I kind of keep telling myself to be more like a goldfish and kind of kind of keep trying to move on and, and forget whatever is, has been, like, affecting me and, and keep looking forward to, to the future. So that's probably, probably my uh, current motto and, and <laughs> philosophy. Oh, mate. maybe not the best one. You seem a very wise man. No, that seriously, that is very, very good. Yeah. Uh, I like that a lot. And I'm not just saying that, but I mentioned that was the final question before the final segment. You've listened to the show before, so you might just know a little bit about this. For sure. It's called the Where Do We Begin Quiz, and I'm going to hit the music. Wow. Louis, if that doesn't get you very fired up, I'm not quite sure what does. That's, that's some pretty, pretty epic music we've got going on there. So the situation with the quiz is this. We've had all these Winter Olympians. Usually we have Lockie going against the guest in the quiz, but obviously he's not here. So with the Winter Olympians, we've been asking some Winter Olympic style questions, been putting them all up in the leaderboard uh, against each other. We have Nick Timmons and Jess Yaten uh, both got two uh, out of eight correct. And then out of six, we had Phil Bellingham and Seve Di Campo, um, the cross-country skiers. They got three out of six. So they're leading at the moment. They thought they'd taken out the Ooh. whole thing because they thought they were the last guests. But you're a very, very I'm late coming. inclusion, uh, Louis. I'm coming uh, for Seve, that's for sure. You're coming for Seve. And you know what? Look, I... I kind of ex- expected Predict to come into this year. You'd be, a, you'd be a smart man. I've only got six questions for you. It, it definitely wasn't because I forgot uh, that I was meant to do eight. I've got six questions for you. If you can get more than uh, if you can get more than three, you've won it outright. But if you can get three, you, you top the leaderboard. Are you ready to go? 
I'm ready. Let's try. Let's see what okay. we get to. Let's see what we get to. Four, four or more gives you the outright, uh, we'll call it the gold medal, until at least we do more Winter Olympic episodes after the Games. But here is question one. I've got some kind of menacing uh, hot seat type music, and I'll hit that now. Louis, which Winter Olympics were the first not to be held in a Summer Olympic year? Oh, jeez. Like 19... 19- Let's go with like 1942. Uh, He's saying 1942. The first I think I'm way wrong, but not to be held in a summer Olympic year. It looked like you were about to say 1990 something. I think you should have because the answer is Lillehammer, <sighs> Norway, 1994. So you're incorrect, I'm afraid. No way. Ah, oh, jeez. Oh, I was thinking that. I was thinking it was late, but I was like, nah, it's for sure way earlier. Oh, yeah. Damn. Well, 1942, uh, I think that, w- that was during the war as well. So I'd be quite <laughs> yeah, surprised if that had any. I figured that. Visits. I was like, oh, that's probably not the answer. Yeah, well, geez, but you're way too far off anyway. So even if you said 50 or 60 something, you wouldn't be right. Anyway, geez, you had to get it exactly Wrong right, generation. So who cares how far off you got? Uh, really, zero points is zero points, I'm afraid. But move on to question two. Let's see if you can uh, get off the mark here. Um, got to. Yeah, you really got to get your act together uh, quite quickly if you want to beat uh, Sevy and Phil. And we'll move to question two now. Seriously. So, Louis, three non-European and non-Asian nations have won medals in alpine skiing in the Olympics. What are these three nations? In alpine skiing? Uh, yes, in alpine skiing. Sorry, I said non-European or Asian. I meant non-European or North American. One's Australian, I know that. One's Zali, uh, Stegel. Uh, I miswrote the question there, so I hope I haven't miswritten the answer. So I'm trying to think if one's New Zealand or not. Uh, I'm going to go with one Australian, one Japanese, and one New Zealand. They're going to be my guesses. Okay, firstly, Australia won a bronze in 98, Zali Stegel, as you mentioned, so that's correct. Nicely yes. done. But you need to get, to get the point, you need to get all three. New Zealand, they won a silver in 92, so that's also correct. Now, oh, is Japan. Two of the way there. Is Japan correct? Let's get a bit of a drum roll going, see if you're off the mark. Is Japan correct? In 1956... Japan won a silver medal in alpine skiing at the Winter Olympic Games. Yeah. Got the point. Let's oh, go. Louis. Let's go. Very nicely done. It's off the mark. It's Good one from stuff. two. Uh, and we've got four questions left. You're going to need to get three, uh, which is a mighty, mighty challenge to get outright top on the leaderboard. So let's move to question three and see if you can uh, hit the mark on this one. Uh, a couple famous movie characters and movie teams. Firstly, Eddie the Eagle, Edwards, and the Jamaican bobsleigh team. They both took part in the same Olympic Games. Which Winter Olympic Games were they? Oh. Real people, of course. And those movies were based off their true stories. Frick, which games was that? Was it the one in Lilyhammer? That's my guess. You going Lilyhammer 1994? Yeah, that's it. Let's let's lock it in. You're locking it in. Lock it in, Eddie. But, yeah, jeez, maybe spend it, should have spent a bit more time thinking about it. Not locked it in so early because it is Calgary. 1980. Oh, Pretty oh, close. Six years off. So, this is this is the situation as it stands, Louis. You've got three questions I left. Let's get out three. right top. You need to get three correct. So, you're up against right. it here. Everyone else, (laughs) all the other people who went by themselves had eight questions. But look, I'll I'll admit it, I forgot that I had to do eight. I only did six. Uh, So, look, you might be at a bit of a disadvantage, but let's see if you can pull off a miracle. Uh, An absolute underdog fightback story. Question four. Let's do it. It's another alpine skiing one, and it goes like this Norway's Kjetil Andre Amot leads the all time alpine skiing Olympic medal tally. 
with uh, four gold and eight total medals in the Winter Olympics. Which Olympics was his first and which Olympics was his last? Uh, say his name again. His name? Jeez, uh, I hope I'm getting this kind of right. It's Kjetil Andre Amot from Norway. It's the all-time uh, leading alpine medal medalist, alpine skiing medalist in the Winter Olympics. And he had how many medals? Can you do that one more time? Eight medals, a uh, couple silver, a couple bronze, four gold. Do you know who this guy is? I, I'm think, I think I do, but I also might have this as a different one. Okay. Well, let's give it a shot nonetheless. There's a lot on the line here. So I, I want to say his first one... Hey, I'll give you a clue. I'll give you a clue. He went right. to... Uh, how many Olympics did he go to? He would have been to five, I think. I hope. Five. Okay. He went to five. That means Calgary was not... 98, 88 is too... It was Calgary. That's too early. 14 years between yep. the first one and the last one. I'm helping you out here because you've got... I'm guessing the last one was Pyeongchang and the first one was the... What was it, 2002? No, uh, 20... Oh, jeez, my math's not good. 18 minus 4. Uh, 2004 Olympics, which would have been... Uh, yeah, let's go with that. 2004 to 2018. Pyeongchang. And it would have been... Salt Lake. Is it Salt Lake City? Salt Lake City did host the Winter Olympics. Is that your answer? Salt Lake City, then Pyeongchang. I don't know if Salt Lake City was 2004. I think it was 2008. Crap. Yeah. 2004 to 2000. Yeah. Salt Lake City to Pyeongchang. Louis. All right, let me hit a drum roll. Compared to the last one, there was an awful lot of thinking involved here. An awful lot of uh, mathematical uh, algorithmics and equations. <laughs> too, but too, too much going on. You stumbled. There was no Winter Olympics in 2004 or 2008. Rio, uh, Salt Lake City hosted it in 2002, but that's not even the right answer. The first Damn one it. was 1992 Albertville and 2006 in Turin was his final one, so I'm afraid it's incorrect. Oh, jeez, I'm way off. All right, now i got to at least tie you have to tie. You have to do it, Louis. Come on. Are you, are you feeling... Are you feeling right. Do you feel like you can get on top of I the I need game? to clear the head. Clear the head. Yeah, get. I need to clear the head. We're good. We're good. Okay, we're good. Hopefully, you get these last two right. and tie with Phil and Sevy. And look, you have been up against it with this slightly unfair amount of questions. But I think you're basically the people's champion if you get both of these last Gotta two deal. correct. So, question Gotta five is this. Fun fact for you, Louis, the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games, they cost 22 billion Australian dollars, an awful lot of money. So, to the nearest billion, how much are the Beijing Olympics in 2022 going to have cost by their conclusion? In, are we saying in Australian dollars? We're talking Australian dollars here, to the nearest billion. Ooh, it's our summer, so I'm guessing more for a winter with all the infrastructure. Ah, I'm going with 22 billion. Let's guess they had infrastructure there. Probably 60. Ah, no, 60 is too high. Let's go 50, 51 billion. You're saying 51 billion dollars fund the 2022 Beijing Olympics. Look, we might have gone too many drum rolls, but in my honest view, you can never have too many drum rolls. You can never have too much tension in this quiz. So let me hit another drum roll. You've got to get this, Louis. I'm stressing. The Tokyo Olympics, they cost 22 billion. They had 11,656 athletes. The Beijing Olympics, are expected to have 2,861 athletes and are expected to have co- to cost 
around six billion dollars. That's it. Oh, jeez, I'm so off. Holy crap! Look, I I really did want to give you a point just for being close because I know that you've been treated a bit unfairly, but you're not close at all. I'm so far off. You're not close at all. Why am I thinking winter's going to be so much more? I thought it'd be way more infrastructure. Yeah, well, there's just so many sports in the summer, isn't there? There's like you've yeah, only I got, guess so. Is it 15 events or 15 sports or something in the winter? It's yeah, yeah, and <sighs> it's, it's like, almost five times as many, four or five times as many athletes in the summer. So a lot more accommodation yeah. sorted out and all that kind of thing. Look, this last, way off. This last question here. It's a bit of a dead rubber. Well, oh, actually, it's, it's not totally a dead rubber because if you don't get right, you finish last. And that oh, geez, that's okay. not something that you want. <laughs> All right, I've gone from doing well to getting crumbed. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Louis, you don't want to finish last. You've got to get this question. Pressure's on for about the fifth question in the row. The pressure is on, and we're going to play the pressure on music. Let's do it, let's do it. Another alpine skiing question. Which two countries, which have never previously gone to the Winter Olympics for any sport, are sending alpine skiers to Beijing to represent them? Oh, jeez, this is going to be tough. How, how well do you know your field, Louis? How, how well do you know I don't think I know them. <laughs> I don't think I know them that well. That's what I'm worried about. Okay, I'm going to guess one is Iraq. One is Iraq? I know there's an Iranian skier. Oh, are you saying Iran or Iraq? Sorry. Oh wait, let me let me think about that one. Is he Iraq or Iran? Okay, now I need to think. Um, what would the other one be? Oh, you really kill me with these questions. <laughs> Jeez. Um, oh, shoot. And let's go. Little clue. This sounds super obvious, but. These aren't countries which you'd associate with the Winter Olympics at all. Hence, <laughs> the Winter Olympics. It's not. It's not Canada or anything like that. It's hot country. Good. <laughs> Good. I'd be. I'd be worried if it was Canada. That's for sure. <laughs> Austria. Holy man. Oh yeah. I'd be like, hey, something's not right. Here. <laughs> I really don't know if he's skiing for Iraq or Iran. I. It, it, I think I've. I've raced against him as well, which is. The, the tricky one. Um, let's Who's go with man, Louis. Who's this man you've raced against? I, I'm stressing. I'm stressing. Jeez. As let's you go be, with. You don't want to finish last. I really. Yeah. Jesus. I really don't want to finish last. <clears throat> I you really don't know. I feel like I know what he is, but I don't know what the second one would be. And, like, the second one's going to be a, compl- a complete shot in the dark. Okay. Look, let me give you a couple of clues, which I don't know if they quite know right. you on a plate, but I'll give you some regions. One of them is in the Americas somewhere, that kind of general region of the Americas. Ooh. And the other one is in the Middle East. Okay, so I think I'm right on the Middle East one. I don't... Ooh, the Met- Americas... We have, is it men's or is it women's as well? Uh, they're both in the men's giant slalom. Slalom. Jeez, jeez, jeez. Okay. <sighs> America's would be... The music loop doesn't go for too much longer, uh, Louis, so I'm going to have to okay. kind of get Nancy out of Am here. I running out? I'm running out. Okay. Let's go with... I think this is going to be wrong, but let's go uh, with the... With Mexico, I think it's wrong, but I'm gonna go with it. And then the other one, I'm gonna go with. I know it's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna shoot the dark because I, I think I'm wrong with Iraq, and I'm gonna go Israel. Whoa! Late change of heart. Are you sure you want to? Late say that? change of heart. I, yes. Yeah. Okay. Mexico and Israel. We're locking it in. We're just saying it. Let's lock it in. How it goes. I'm done. Get it right. I think I'm going to be last. If you get it right, you're equal last. But if you get it wrong, you're outright last. You are just the loser. Everyone's laughing at you. Oh, jeez. They'll, they'll throw shit at you. you. You'll be the disgrace of the nation, mate. Until you win gold in Beijing, of course. That. But, uh, <laughs> look, 
I'll give you enough drum roll because there's never enough drum rolls, as I said. There's never enough. The guy from the Middle East, his name is Faik Abdi, and the guy from the Americas, his Italian heritage, Richardson Viano. Faik Abdi. He's not from Iraq. He's not from oh, Iran. Frick, it's... He's from Saudi Arabia. Oh, jeez. No way I was getting that. Oh, he's not from Israel. Damn it. And not that it matters anymore, but the other guy's from Haiti. So Haiti and Saudi Arabia. No but, chance I'm getting that. Mate, outright last place. I gave you some clues. Shoot. You couldn't get it done. I don't know if Someone's this is too hard, but I've got a sound effect here that I don't use much, but I might have to use here. Let's do it. Yes. What do you have to say for yourself? Uh, I, I feel I feel ashamed. I I am proud. I am proud. I did uh, know Australia's uh, one of Australia's gold medals or one of Australia's medals in Alpine. So I I am proud of that. But I can yeah I can't speak for the rest of it. I'm pretty ashamed. I was way off on all my guesses. That was a very good answer that you plucked out of nowhere. I was expecting you to go on a good run. It didn't come to fruition. Maybe next time. If and when you come on the show again, maybe in the studio even, you can get it right. But um, yeah, and you can do the quiz against Lockie. But it's not wasn't to be this time. We'll move on. Louis, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. It's been a it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, man, it's been absolutely awesome. I've loved it. Our listeners, I hope you guys have loved it as well. It's been really good. We are going to have more Winter Olympic episodes after these Olympics. I know this the last one was meant to be our last one, but this was a, a little late in uh, Louis Moulin-Schulter. So thank you very much again for coming on, that, and thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you very much. Lovely, lovely. Uh, thanks for that, mate. Um, that was good.